Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, your host for Leading Voices in Real Estate. Welcome to part two of my conversation with Ron Terwilliger, one of the legends in the real estate business. In the prior episode, we heard Ron's career story and how he built Trammell Crow Residential to be a giant in the apartment industry. Ron retired just prior to the Great Recession, and although he had always been a great supporter of real estate industry associations, with his retirement from TCR, he both gave away a large chunk of his fortune, but he also dedicated himself essentially full-time to leadership on various social issues, most specifically on affordable housing. In this part two of our conversation, we talk about philanthropy and also dive deep into the current housing affordability crisis in our country. This podcast is brought to you by JLL. JLL is a leading professional services firm that is reimagining the world of real estate by creating rewarding opportunities and amazing spaces around the world so that people can achieve their ambitions. To learn more about JLL, please visit jll.com slash voices. Ron, let's let's continue with our conversation, and it's in 2006, 7, 8, you retire. You'd already been involved philanthropically. You had been chair of ULI over the years. So talk about kind of pre-retirement, what your kind of industry and philanthropic endeavors were, and then post-retirement, what Let's get the big picture of what all that means, and we could drill yeah. down on some of the topics here. Well, you know, um, I had a platform from Trammell Crow Residential, the largest multifamily developer in the country, for many, many years. So it was natural for me to be invited to participate in industry organizations. I got involved with Wharton because they called the Crow family and asked if somebody would come to Wharton. And even though I went to Harvard, Harvard didn't have much going on in real estate. Wharton did. So I spent time in Wharton and ended up being chair of the Real Estate Advisory Board, became a very close friend of Lineman's. Very high-quality organization, as you know. Uh Um, Because my housing background, I reached out, and because I lived in Atlanta, I reached out to Habitat, which was at the time headquartered in America's Georgia, and said, I'm looking for a charity for all my organization to participate in. We can participate in builds around the country and contribute some money. And so I met Millard Fuller. Uh-huh. And um, Millard invited me to join the board of Habitat for Humanity. So I did that. When I mean, was that? That was still in the... Well, it's about well, 20 years ago. Okay. Because I served on the board. I became board chair. And then I made a $100 million legacy gift to Habitat when I stepped aside as board chair and agreed to chair their first ever global capital campaign. I'm still doing that. Okay. I'm perpetually- Are you still paying off the $100 million or? <laughs> Well, I am, but it, it was a legacy gift, you know, so that's, uh, don't shoot me because I don't want you to collect too soon. Okay. So I, what I actually am doing, I recently made a $15 million commitment to create a center for innovation and shelter, which is market-based solutions around the world for low-income people. We're even looking at an app now. We're working with Enterprise on an app for poor people always seem to have cell phones. And we think we can come up with an application that would give them knowledge about building materials, you know, law, money, things like that. Part of the Center for Innovation and Shelter, the Twilliger Center for Innovation and Shelter, is also micro-build or micro-finance for housing. And we just put together a $100 million fund, and we're getting ready to start raising money for the second one. 
And that's making microfinance type loans, small, relatively small loans for home improvements around the world. Mostly in the U.S. or elsewhere? No, no, outside the U.S. Outside. My, all my work in, in Habitat now is outside the United States. We're in 70 countries. We're trying to rationalize that. Um, so I, I'm on the board of Habitat and have been for 20 years now. So housing seemed to be a natural mm-hmm. for me because I'm a houser. I've been in housing ever since 1970. Right. And I've been in ULI since 1974. So my philanthropic interest began to focus on housing. You know, as I said earlier, I came from a very low end, lower middle income family. I had no expectations of wealth. And as I started to get wealthy in my late 40s and 50s, I began thinking about what should I do. I had the flexibility at Trammell Corps Residential to spend some time on industry organizations. Mm-hmm. And I focused, began focusing my philanthropy on, on housing, affordable slash workforce housing, mm-hmm. and have participated in that significantly. Um, when I retired from Crow at the end of 08, my intention was to become a full-time philanthropist, both giving away my money, you know, kind of the Warren Buffett strategy of give away half your money during your lifetime. Right. And uh, and, and basically working on nonprofit boards. So I chair the board of Enterprise Community Partners, which is a fairly significant endeavor, founded by a real estate man, Jim Rouse. Um, it's a national organization community development, affordable housing. We're working a lot on opportunity zones now. We have an investment company that makes a reasonably good amount of money syndicating tax credits, new markets, and low income, as well as we have a big mortgage company now called Bellwether Enterprise Mortgage. So I enjoy spending time with them. Um, I have the uh, Twilliger Center for Housing at ULI. When, When I stepped down as chair, that was one of the things I agreed to found and endow. So I have ULI in my will, um, but I initially started on workforce housing. Pam Patnode was my first executive director. She's now the deputy director of HUD. Um, and Stockton Williams just left for National Council of State Housing Authorities. But we broadened that, Patrick Phillips and I, at ULI, we kind of renegotiated the franchise, so to speak, to include all housing at ULI except for resort and second home. Focus still is on affordable and workforce housing. So I'm doing that. About six years ago, I got invited to give the speech on housing policy at Harvard University, the Dunlop Lecture. Uh-huh. And I was the first non-public sector type person to do it. A lot of HUD secretaries had done it before. And, and so I tried really hard to think about what to say. And I decided I would just research the housing conditions in this country and, and talk about it from a more macro standpoint. And the more I learned about the house, what I call the housing crisis, the more concerned I became. I really got angry about it. So I made my Dunlop lecture, but I contacted Pam Patnode, who had gone from ULI to the Bipartisan Policy Center to to be the executive director of the housing forum, we had a we had a group, including uh, you know Henry Cisneros and a bunch of very significant people. We did a housing forum. It went on for three years. I was one of the commissioners, and when that was winding up, it was about the time I was doing this Dunlop lecture. And I said, Pam, I'm willing to invest a million dollars a year 
for three years in trying to influence federal housing policy. Because by that time, I'd realized what a significant crisis we'd had in the U.S. People talk about it as a crisis now. They weren't talking about it as a crisis four years ago when I started this. But it was a crisis, and it was not well understood. And my take was that while state and federal should and can contribute to housing affordability, the, the scale that was needed could only be addressed by the resources of the federal government. Mm-hmm. So I spent three years. I had a great advisory board. Bart Harvey, who was former CEO of Enterprises on Fannie Mae's board, had the head of the mortgage bankers, the home builders, um, a terrific group of people helping advise me on how to imp- influence federal housing policy. Must have talked to 60 or 70 senators and congressmen. The first thing I learned, maybe not unsurprisingly, is that they didn't know we had a housing crisis. I mean, people like Senator Collins, Lindsey Graham, McCain, Mm -hmm. they didn't realize the the depth of it. It's kind of like the the three quarters of Americans who are well housed don't seem to know that a quarter or not, or, or don't seem to care. I'd like to think it's don't seem to know. So I tried really hard to influence federal housing policy. I was targeting tax reform kind of as the end of my foundation. I was going to do everything I could during tax reform to try to expand the low-income housing tax credit mm-hmm. and to find an alternate or or grow Section 8. And uh, I did that for three years. Pam left to go to HUD. The, the other guy, Dennis Shea, who was her successor, went to Geneva as ambassador to Geneva um, in, in an economic sense. And tax reform happened, so I wound up that foundation. You know, some people say that the fact that we preserved the low-income house tax credit and private activity bonds was in part because of the education my foundation did. I don't know if that's the case. I tried hard. I find it frustrating that, you know, we spend $200 billion a year on housing subsidy in this country, and 70% of it goes to home ownership, and almost all of that goes to wealthy people. Right. Relatively speaking, wealthy. It's just a total misappropriation of our resources, in my opinion. On a relative basis, it yeah. sure is. So, so anyhow, today um, what what has evolved is I've gotten back into business a little bit. So I spend about a day to a day and a half a week on for-profit businesses. Not serious money to me, just fun, just uh-huh. being involved with Peter Pappas and my brother and you know, my former partner, Russ Davis. But most of my time and energy is spent on philanthropy, most of it on workforce and affordable housing, uh-huh. some of it on educating low-income children. Uh-huh. I chair the I Have a Dream Foundation in New York, which adopts kids in kindergarten and tries to, what we call, provide wraparound services to take them all the way through college. And I'm on the board of the Horatio Alger Association, and we give high school kids who have somehow survived their families and done well academically, we give them scholarships to go to college. You know, my view is this is becoming an an incredibly diverse society. According to the Urban Institute, 88% of all future households from 2020 to 2030 are minority. And if we don't give those minority kids a chance to get a decent education and skills, if they're determined to, you know, stay in intergenerational poverty, you know, they're not going to add to our society. And that's what not what the United States stands for. We need to give everybody a chance. So we're doing 
in what I'm doing in the education space, a little bit of help. But that's, to me, a very significant need this country has to figure out how to address. Mm -hmm. I don't know if the country's yet figured out. We, we don't want to go into politics too much, but I don't know if the country's figured out in its own dialogue how diverse a country it is and income inequality and then intergenerational issues that you're describing and how just massively diverse the country is. And, and, and is becoming. I mean, think right. about that statistic. More so. more and more Essentially, and more. nine out of 10 new households for as far in the future as we can see are minority. Right. Led by Latinos, secondly, African-Americans, and then Asian and others. So, you know, white folks like myself are one out of 10 going forward, and we're going to become a smaller and smaller part. The bigger thing is in housing, as you know, um, whites own housing, you know, at 70-some percent right. range. Uh, minorities, African-Americans and Latinos, their homeownership's in the low 40s, low to mid-40s. Uh -huh. If all... Virtually all the new households are Latinos and African-Americans. Exaggerating to make the point, yeah, home ownership rates are going to drop to the extent we value that. The, the demand on rental housing, yeah, I mean, we already have 11 million households spending more than half their income on rental housing. Right. One out of four households. So that's going to become a bigger and bigger problem. And if all of your income goes to housing and you don't have money for other things, that's not a just society. That's not the kind of country I think we want to have going forward. But trying to get people to pay attention and allocate resources mm -hmm. to workforce and affordable housing is really difficult. So so let's talk about that for a few minutes. And it's interesting because I guess you said when you started the Terwilliger Center at ULI, it was to think about workforce housing, right. not low-income housing. Right. And I'm just fascinated with, for years and years, the discussion was, affordable housing, which meant housing subsidy, alphabet soup, tax credit, and poor people. But now the housing crisis is well beyond, A, what our resources do for that group, but it's gone way up the income spectrum That's to right. workforce middle-income people in certain cities or many cities yeah. have just a huge housing crisis. Yeah, no, it's, it's a national problem. A lot of people say, say to me, hey, it's San Francisco, New York. That's not right. It's in Dubuque, Iowa. It's everywhere there's a problem. At ULI, the reason initially that I picked workforce housing, which we defined as people making between 60 and 120% of area median income, right. was just to highlight the idea that there are a lot of people in that income spectrum that cannot afford a decent rental home close to where they live. Right. And we put a face on them. We said, well, these are teachers, policemen, firemen, nurses. You know, These are the kind of people that are having to drive till they qualify, as they say, but drive long ways from home, consuming not only a lot of their budget on housing, but on transportation as well, right. and wearing themselves out and not being home to raise their kids. Their so kids, there's an educational issue with right. that. So mm -hmm. we try to put a spotlight on workforce housing. In Atlanta, Renee Glover and I work for Mayor Franklin in heading up her housing task force, uh -huh. and we called it affordable workforce housing because- Affordable housing had a negative connotation, just as you implied. A lot of people think, oh, those are people that aren't working. Right. They're, they're not worthy of our help. Whereas workforce puts this, the connotation on it that these are working people. When, in fact, almost all the people we're talking about they work. who can't afford it, they work. But there's a, another amazing statistic that comes from the American Enterprise Institute, right? A right of center think tank that 38% 
of our workforce today in the United States are service workers or light operations workers. 38% of our workforce, almost four out of 10. Average income, $26,000 a year. Now they can afford a $650 a month apartment if they spend 30%, which is kind of the guide. So that's how bad it is in this country. I heard like 70, 80% of American households have less net worth than $15,000. I don't know the number. Close to that. the, the, The relative... You're, you're right in general. The majority of American households don't have enough savings to take care of a car repair. It's stunning. Yeah, we'll pause on that one because that's shocking. It, it, it's stunning. It's stunning. It's just funny because we had the first part of the conversation about creating net worth, and then you get to this point, and the vast majority of households don't have the savings for car repair. Right. Yeah, and you know, it's it's getting worse for a number of reasons, one of which is construction costs are going up significantly. Right. Part of that is because regulation has just gone up dramatically. That that first apartment I built in 12 months in Atlanta on a steep right. slope would take 22 months today. A lot of that difference are codes, inspections. Mm-hmm. You know, it's hard to argue with some of them. Um I tell people when they talk about, well, why doesn't the private sector just address this problem? I say, well, I'm involved with a partnership in Charlotte, fairly inexpensive place to build, Right. build apartments in the suburbs. Everybody parks on the surface. You don't build parking structures. No elevators in the buildings, three-story walk-ups. Cheapest 900-square-foot apartment, 900 average, is $160,000 per unit. That's the cheapest we can build. Half the United States cannot afford that apartment. So half the United States cannot afford the cheapest new apartment we can build. In Charlotte. In Charlotte, which is the lowest cost area. Mm -hmm. You know, median income in this country today is about $59,000 a year. Um, So we used to frame workforce housing as 60 to 120% in some high cost areas like San Francisco. You might even say 150%. Um, but nothing gets done new mm-hmm. that's affordable to those people. Mm-hmm. So the only way to add to the supply in terms of new construction is through subsidy. And the best program to date has survived 30 years, less than perfect, I would argue, low-income housing tax credits. Right. That's where I pushed in my you know federal efforts to get them to triple low-income housing tax credits. Because National Multi-Housing Council, Doug Bibby, would tell you we lose 120,000 affordable units a year to obsolescence, fire, whatever, conversion. So we're building about, you know, 60 and losing 120, and we're going backwards at a time when demand is increasing. Mm -hmm. It's it's really tough. The other other side, and we spoke about this at the Enterprise Board meeting, is what they call NOAA. Mm-hmm. Kind of a cute acronym for naturally occurring affordable housing, which means basically housing that's older and 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 therefore doesn't command as high a rent as new housing would. Preserving the tax credit projects that were built, whose contracts are expiring, Section 8 contracts, preserving NOAA is also an important right. thing. So think of NOAA as not tax credit properties right. because Market there's rate. an existing portfolio of subsidized properties, tax credit, and then there's the existing portfolio of market rate, what we call B and C apartments. Right, which is NOAA. 
Right. And it's being, and most of the investment dollars available for NOAA is to do what we value call add. value add. That's right. Which means they're going to improve it, flip it, and affordability is not part of the dynamic. Is there a model in which investors will invest for a longer term hold and truly get market returns to buy a NOAA apartment, but not over improve it and not displace too many people? Well, you know, there are a couple of people I've invested with one of them, Jonathan Rose, who's on the Enterprise Board, uh-huh. um, and Daryl Carter, who have money that they raise to buy older B and C apartments. They probably do some value add in terms of physical improvements. Should be done. There are impact investors that like that space. What frustrating to me is when you talk about impact investors or double bottom line or triple bottom line, you think people are going to be investing and taking a lower yield because there's a social good, but there aren't very many of them. So at Enterprise, we're on our third fund now of buying apartments with preservation in mind, preservation of affordability. Some of them are tax credits, some of them are market rate. Um, You have to give up a little yield, and some of us are willing to do that, but I'm sadly... Most of the people that I talk to about impact investing aren't finding a whole lot of people mm-hmm. who are willing to do that. They like the double bottom line, right? But they're, you know, they're either fiduciaries or for some whatever reason they feel like they need to get a, a return equal to what they get on market rate. And and you know the real estate business well because if you think of buying a core investment, say a really pretty office building, yeah, then the returns on a core real estate are pretty low. And they may maybe you get a big pop at the end if you sell it, but you're going to hold that for a long term and you put it. Well, in yeah, an open and, and core fund. investing means to me investing in a quality product in a quality location where there's not a risk of the location deteriorating. So you may go in at a lower cap rate or initial yield. Right. You feel that that yield is secure and will go up slowly over time versus buying something. At a higher going on in yield, but there's more volatility to the yield, and there's a chance overbuilding will, you know, cause you to have to drop rents. Of course, but what we don't know is what's. I don't. Maybe you've seen statistics on the long-term risk-adjusted changes in Noah. If you hold, buy a Noah in a middle-class, moderate-income neighborhood that's a stable property, over time, does that return a very predictable yield? And is that more risky than, say, an office building where things change? Yeah. Well, I'm I'm investing. Since I did all this research in my foundation, I've become convinced that anybody who can deliver rents between $800 and $1,200 a month have a pretty secure investment, unless that neighborhood's going south. Uh And you may not be able to raise your rents enough, but you get a pretty secure investment. so I think that's a, a good bet. I'm doing that myself uh, now with my private funds with some partners. Right. Um, it's you know it, it's important that we be able to provide a competitive return. But the bottom line to me is, with this growing shortage of affordable housing, housing that is affordable to to working people, um, the right. way we're going to address it is by providing more creative subsidies. Uh, and more subsidy. And I'm pleased to see that some of the states, as well as the mayors, are paying attention. Now, I'm told that at ULI, the number one issue for district councils is housing affordability. I'm told the number one issue in this country with the mayors is that, and it's getting to the governors. So 
you know, we work with states at Enterprise, and we had a report recently on what's being done at the states. And some of it's very creative. And one of the things we're trying to do with our housing center at ULI is provide best practices to mayors and to governors so that within the realm of the resources they control, they can help address this problem. Some of it's, some of it's just basically having reasonable regulations that govern the construction and or renovation of housing. Uh-huh. Um, you know, we recommend, for example, that where governments have uh, surplus land and they sell it that they require inclusionary zoning, that they inquire, require a certain percentage of the units to be affordable to people making less than, you know, the area median income or uh-huh. less than 100% of the area median or, or 80% or something, mm-hmm. you know, a mixed income. And one of the places I, I find just fascinating is you, you talk about subsidy and my mind immediately goes to deep subsidy and very low income people. But I know that there could and should and maybe solving the problem and our money may go, our money, <laughs> money may go further if it's helping the affordability gap above very low income. But there's some resistance to that because maybe some of the traditional housing advocates want as much as you can get. Yeah. The, so and and I, ran in, I ran into this at the Bipartisan Policy Center. And I accused the Bipartisan Policy Center of not being bold enough in its recommendations. Mm-hmm. In the end, we focused on the very low-income people mm-hmm. and the significant subsidy needed for very low-income people, people making, you know, twelve, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 a year. Yeah, I get that. Um, it obviously costs more to subsidize somebody there than it does somebody that's almost able to afford using the 30% guideline. Right. Um, what, what it is that, uh, you can provide in the local community. Right. So it's, it's a challenge. You know, we, we felt like in my foundation, we recommended to Senator Graham and others that they consider a rental tax credit because you either subsidize the individual and supplement the income that they can afford to spend on housing, or you subsidize the project so that that project can make a fair return charging below market rents. Those are the two ways Uh I think about it, to go about it. Uh, Neither one is is better than the other. I do think some of it needs to be focused on supply. So if I had to choose one, I'd be an advocate for – building more affordable housing in a mixed income inclusionary style. Um, And, you know, one in five today, you may know the statistic, but only one in five people who are qualified for rental assistance, Section 8, get it because that's appropriated annually. Right. So one in five people who are very poor are in subsidized housing. That means four of five very poor people are in non-subsidized housing, and that's housing probably not run by Trammell Crow Residential or even any of the nonprofits. You know, that's housing that makes the feel of the crisis worse because those yeah. landlords. Well, this is for this is for people who are eligible today. So if if you say yeah. there's a supply which predominantly comes from low-income housing tax credits. There's the demand side, which predominantly Section 8 used to be a few years ago, one in four who qualified got it. Now it's one in five. It's like a lottery. Right. And if you win the lottery, you get help in having an affordable place. And if you don't, you're on your own. Yeah. And and so from a policy standpoint, as you're talking to 
these senators, and you're talking about more conservative senators are the ones whose names you mention. How do they hold this? What do they do? And do they throw up their hands because we don't have resources right now? Well, you know, I I thought I had uh, made a lot of headway with Senator Graham. He's a really funny human being, if anybody's listened to him, Lindsey. And uh, he said to me, because the Republicans are in charge, right? Right. So I basically belong to the Republican Club against Congress, and I had fundraisers there for he and McCain and others. And, uh, and I, you know, he said to me, um, this should be a Republican issue once I educated him on the problem. Right. He said, I'm going to put together a group of senators. And then health care and the Russia investigation and tax reform mm-hmm. all just got in the way. And I'm, I had a meeting with Senator Collins. I remember Susan Collins, and he right. thought there would be a bunch of people who would be interested. But it just did not become a sustainable priority because other things seemed to Lindsay to be more important, right. I guess, than housing. They they just frustrating to me. Somehow they don't feel a responsibility that the you know the 1949 Housing Act said that this country should aspire to every American family having a decent home and a decent location. Nobody's followed up on that. And when I ask people, like I ask uh, Senator Scott from South Carolina, an African-American senator, if he felt the federal government had a responsibility for housing American families, I got pretty much a blank stare. I don't think they feel, I don't know if they feel like it's government's responsibility for health care or for education, but it's pretty clear to me that the U.S. Congress does not feel like housing America's families is their responsibility. I hope you're all enjoying my conversation with Ron. I wanted to take a moment to hear some insights from Tim Leonard, who is a managing director with our sponsor, JLL. Tim has been in the affordable housing business for two decades, closing more than $8 billion of affordable housing transactions over his career. Never before in my career has housing affordability been such a front page issue. Tim, talk a bit about what's happening today and about the opportunities for businesses involved with affordable housing. You know, I'd say the biggest change in affordable housing in the past five years is just an ever-increasing demand versus supply. So it makes great sense for those that are that are driven by regulatory and public relations reasons. It makes a lot of sense for those who are driven by socially conscious motivations. It makes sense for, you know, in, in some instances, individual corporations to effectively build housing for their own workforce. So in those instances, it makes sense regulatory, social, public relations, and just dire need for housing. You know, absent those investor groups, a pure, you know, economic-driven return without federal subsidy or regulatory uh, incentives, the, the return on investment isn't there. It's interesting to think of what the government responsibility is, and then if you look at how the society works in terms of issues like this, does is our society functional? And Congress doesn't know how to address, it's not functional right now, what do we do? Oh, we throw money at it, we do this. But you have a dysfunction that's across the board causing this issue. Yeah. And, you know, it's just like a crowd-out effect. I mean, right now, with this last tax reform, we have really increased our deficit, right? I think people like me, a businessman, think eventually we're going to have to address that. Somehow, 
the Republicans seem to have lost their way on the deficit. And, uh, and, and John McCain, I just finished reading his book, and I like a lot about John McCain because I do think he's a moderate Republican and is for consensus builder. He was very close. Mm -hmm. Teddy Kennedy, they went to war and they were buddies. But he doesn't seem to be able to get enough military spending. Mm -hmm. Lindsey Graham's the same way. Those guys went to you know Asia 23 times together. And I'm a former military guy. I'm a veteran. And I think we obviously have to defend our country. But when it comes to trade-offs between military spending, healthcare spending, education spending, housing spending, there's got to be a better balance than we've struck now. And people like John McCain, I think, would trade off in terms of us having the largest military. Well, we have the largest military. We have we spend nine times as much pretty as Russia. Big military. We spend nine times as much as Russia does <laughs> right. on the military. We spend, I think, more than the rest of the world combined on the military. But they can't get enough because we seem to have adopted a global responsibility for enhancing or protecting democracies worldwide. And I honestly think at some point in time we can't afford that. So I, I got frustrated and I tried. And because I'm a Republican businessman who had nothing to gain by what they did here. I have, right. I have no dog in this fight in terms of economics. They they would see me and they would be educated and surprised that we have a housing crisis, but somehow it still couldn't rise to being a priority to make this a more important spend than certainly the military or others. Well, we have a dysfunction in Washington that, is pretty deep yeah. and getting out of the hole. I don't know if you remember David Stockman. Yeah. But he had this Trojan horse idea. And what he really wanted to do was to bankrupt the government by the cuts they had and the tax the tax cuts and the spending cuts. They were going to bankrupt the government with the goal of therefore shrinking government because it got bankrupt. Uh, it feels like this yeah, he was, tax he act. He was head of the budget office, wasn't he? Yeah. Stockman, yeah. yeah. But he used the word Trojan horse. And he was going to sneak it in to bankrupt the government so they could stop everything. And that ultimately there'd never be government again because I'm exaggerating, but that was kind of the concept. And it feels a bit like what the concept is today. Yeah. Uh, so talk, let's kind of, we're going to wrap up soon, but a question is from your for-profit experience, we're talking about policy, but you're also the chair of enterprise. And so you work, you work in the nonprofit world. You spend a lot of time and resources in, in the nonprofit world. Talk about that culturally a little bit, and then talk about the lessons you learned with these great partners you had years ago at Trammell Crow and running an incredibly successful business. Does that, the model of how the nonprofits do things, how do you bring the, kind of your leadership wisdom to that world? Well, you know, leadership is obviously probably an overused word, but it's really important that people have respected leaders that feel like. Um, there's an alignment of interest and they have their well-being at heart and people are not being selfish and don't have their own personal or private agenda. So I thought, you know, Crow was utopia for me. Shame on me if I didn't feel that way because I created the environment. Right. And, you know, trying to pick up on the signals I thought of generosity, uh, giving people delegating authority and responsibility from Crow. In the nonprofit world, you know, th th there's, they're not all created equal, right? I have the pleasure and the privilege of working with two great CEOs, Jonathan Reckford mm -hmm. at Habitat, smart guy, Stanford MBA. I don't mean to overemphasize, but 
you can tell, terrific leader. Interestingly, Jonathan, different than me. I mean, I made my money and retired at the age of 68 and and decided to spend pretty much full-time on the nonprofit world. Jonathan graduated from Stanford Business School, worked in two or three different industries, made some real money, and then decided that that wasn't God's calling for him. And so he went to a church in Minnesota as executive pastor, and I was on the board of selecting him uh, on the search committee at at Habitat. Uh He's done a great job there. He's been there, I think, like 13 or 14 years. Um, Very outstanding leader, very complicated organization because, as you commented earlier, we're international. We're in 70 countries, and it's hard to rationalize that. We have 1,200 really functional U.S. affiliates in 70 countries. Mm -hmm. So he's really good. And at Enterprise, Terry Ludwig, um, who is reasonably well compensated, but not what she could make if she was in the private sector, is the CEO at Enterprise. And she's terrific, and she's hardworking. She and I have worked together for like seven years now. Uh And so we're um, basically a team. Uh, But she runs as CEO, Enterprise Community Partners, and then I made her the chairman of Enterprise Community Investment, which is an investment company that makes about $15 million a year that upstreams that money to support the nonprofit. Right. Um, we have uh, really talented people. We pay well for nonprofits. We have really talented people. I think many of them could make more in the for-profit world, but they, they make a decent living. They take good care of their families. Right. And I think the principles are all the same. You know, it's it's providing inspired leadership. It's delegating appropriately to people. It's having, you know, feedback mechanisms, having a strategic plan, um, working hard at rationalizing each of the business lines. So we have a for-profit side and a and the biggest part and the reason for our existence is not for profit. We're focused principally on housing, mm-hmm. but community development. Um, because what you learn in the in the space that I've been in, in the affordable housing space, is what a family needs. Housing, I always feel like, is foundational. But they need their kids to get a good education. And they need decent health care. And they need access to jobs. You know, and so transportation, housing, healthy foods, that's all a part of what a family needs. So we work on that in a holistic way with housing as our foundation. I think it's, uh, it's, it's been a privilege for me to work with Terry and Jonathan and with organizations like Habitat and Enterprise. I would say the same about all of them I've been involved with, particularly the ones in the, in mm-hmm. the educational space. But my own take um, is that if you get to the place that I've gotten, totally unexpected, you know, I'm sitting there 55 years old and I'm thinking, what is God's plan for me? I've got money beyond what I ever dreamed of, and I have now freedom of independence. Should I leave it all to my family? Should I just keep working, making more money my whole life? A lot of people do that, right? Mm-hmm. And I thought, I, I don't think so. I, you know, I don't think I need to make more money. In fact, my plan is to make sure my children are taken care of. Firstly, they're motivated to work and, and be productive citizens, but taken care of. And my wife is, is taken care of if something happens to me. But I have way more money than that. Right. And I'm, you know, I'm just basically going to give it all away. And now I'm on a mission to give away as much of it productively as I can during my lifetime. 
to Habitat. I just made a $3 million gift to Enterprise to work on resident services. You, you might find this perspective interesting. I realized my whole life when I was building wealth as a market rate guy, I was providing property management services, but that meant collecting the rent and fixing the toilets and painting the, you know, the, the buildings. It didn't mean interfacing with the residents. Now, with what we do at Enterprise, is we're providing what we call resident services. We're helping them get a better education, daycare, health care, trying to be available to help these families have a more productive life. And so I just made this gift to, and we're working with the Urban Institute, which I'm on the board of too, to try and help come up with a different model. Uh, so it's not just doing property management and fixing the ground. Totally important. It's really helping the families enhance uh -huh. their life. Nonprofit housing sector for too long built units. It was about numbers of units, and it was about what the number of the rent was. But now the holistic approach is hugely important to make a difference. Well, in at least in the affordable housing space, it's hard to take people in the market, you know, housing and REITs and all, right. and tell them they have this responsibility. Frequently, the residents that pay their rents don't need the kind of help. But when you get into the affordable space, they need it. these families really need some, or they can use some yes. services. So I'm Delighted to be participating in that now. It's a wonderful thing. And it and it's funny because we listen talking about this over the past fifteen or twenty minutes, you've peppered it with the moments of making huge financial contributions. But what's really clear through the entire conversation is the financial contributions come along with your huge time commitment and your non retirement because you're on <laughs> six or seven boards. Your head is totally into I'm on this. 11 boards now. I totally flunk retirement. Um, <laughs> three of them are for-profit and eight of them are not-for-profit. I chair about five of those. But, I, you know, I'm fortunate enough. I have my own plane. I can get around. My health is still reasonably good. Uh-huh. Um, and it's a, it's a privilege. It's a pleasure to do this. So what I evolved into, instead of just having a legacy gift with Habitat, is working with Habitat to help make a difference around the world and giving money where I could be actively engaged. Um, that's kind of what I am trying to do now. And I'm always a little bit embarrassed about talking about the kind of money that I've given away. And I ask people because sometimes in my resume, I said, well, Ron gave, you know, $5 million here. And like I've given the Naval Academy, I've committed to give the Naval Academy over $20 million. And people say to me, you know, I wouldn't be embarrassed about that because you're inspiring other people to think about being generous with their money. Everybody doesn't have that much money, but even a little bit helps. It's, it's an amazing statistic. If you look about who gives money, people who make very little money as a percentage more. are more philanthropic than wealthier people. Right. And the thing I have no tolerance for is people who, own, who have hundreds of millions of dollars and are just giving it to their kids. It's, I think... Not what. We, we are the most philanthropic country in the world, but we could be a whole lot more philanthropic. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I, I like Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and, and the example they're setting. Well, you're setting it too. And again, I think your time is equally or more important. And also your time, I guess, I guess you could just play a whole lot of golf. You've mentioned golf in passing. I play about once a month, it seems <laughs> like. But you're fully engaged. I always say retirement's a big price and you have the ability to make it. Yeah, you know, it, when, when I pivoted and what I think happens when you retire from your full-time profit-making business, 
is that if you're an engaged mind and right. you're an involved and evolved person, you don't really retire in the classical sense that my father and other people did way back when. You just pivot in where you spend your time and energy. And to me, I had an initial start with Habitat and Enterprise, and I just filled out my dance card. And so I'm as busy as I want to be. My wife thinks I'm crazy because I travel so much, but I love it, and I love helping people. And, you know, it's just like, if you think about, I've lived the American dream, which to me is not owning a house. That's a part of it for some people. It's being able to make as much out of life in this country as you can make based on your own initiatives and some breaks. But I think it's mostly hard work. And uh, I think that's the thing I want to try to provide for more people, particularly lower income people, because... You know, the old stat, uh, the statistic that was just really studied is, you know, the zip code you're born in for so many people determines their life outcomes. And it just shouldn't be that way in this country. It's true. So I always ask a last question in my podcast. And the last question is if you're talking to a young person planning their career and they want to get somewhere in the real estate business, what's your advice? Well, um, the first thing I and I said this earlier is I, the first thing I would say to anybody is find something you really love, so that getting up going to work is something you're looking forward to. That I had the good fortune for part of my career for basically from the time I met Trammell Crow Residential and, and met Trammell Crow on. Now at Hilton Head, I loved those five years there. It wasn't any fun going bankrupt, but other than that. Uh, real estate is a really broad industry. You know, there's all aspects to it. There's everything from the brokerage side where you sell anything from land to buildings right. to the design side, to the construction side, to the development side. Um, so it's it's really broad. And I think people ought to think about if they somehow think they want to be a part of real estate, they ought to think about where they want to enter. I have loved the development business, not only because it's can be immensely profitable if you have the capital base to start, but because it's very creative and you're adding to the built environment. You know, now we have a lot of focus at ULI on sustainability, resiliency. My my partner, Peter Pappas, is really focused on good design, but you got to make a cost-effective design too right. if you're renting it and need a return. So I, I think it's a, a terribly creative field, but it's a broad field. So I would say to people, Find out the breadth of what's involved in real estate, adding to the built environment in this country, and try to figure out where you can fit. And sometimes you have to make a move. Mm -hmm. Like like I commented earlier, when I went to work for McKinsey and Company Consulting, they offered me a job anywhere I wanted coming back after I graduated from business school. But I learned I didn't want to be a consultant. I wanted to be involved in a small company and be making decisions as soon as I reasonably could, I was 29 years old, so I wasn't a total kid. Right. It's funny. If there's one mission I have for the podcast, it's actually to show the breadth of real estate. We've interviewed people from all sectors of the business, including consulting and including investments and including brokerage and including leaders like yourself. And we've looked at people in different sectors and then we've told their stories. And yours is one of the most compelling stories in the industry. 
But combining those compelling stories with understanding the breadth of contribution in the real estate industry is actually what we're trying to do on the podcast. Yeah. So thank you for contributing to that today. Listen, it's my pleasure. I, I'm delighted in what you're doing, and I'll make it a point now to figure out how to listen to these podcasts. This episode of Leading Voices in Real Estate has been brought to you by JLL. JLL is one of the nation's largest affordable and conventional multifamily and seniors housing lenders with comprehensive loan underwriting, asset management, and loan servicing capabilities. Are you interested in how to make your multifamily ambition a reality? Learn more at jll.com voices. That's jll.com voices. Agency GSE Lending and Loan Servicing are performed by Jones Lang LaSalle Multifamily LLC, a wholly owned indirect subsidiary of Jones Lang LaSalle Incorporated.